0: Shaloka ti pati sam pati katan jaliyadiwaram maya chata santi dasam taha parajaka jati ka anukam Thank you, that was perfect. This evening we have questions from the magic ball. <laughs> <laughs> this will be Chosen at complete random spontaneous intuition. Oh, start off with the good one. What is mine? Not yours, it's mine. <laughs> Just kidding. If this, <clears throat> what started off being a simple question, what is mind, continues? Is this an individual phenomena with many small minds affecting individual bodies, or is it one great mind phenomena affecting many individual bodies? Several times on this retreat, I thought of something, and soon afterwards, someone else took action based on my thoughts. <laughs> this seems to support the one great mind theory, but it could be the individual minds being subjected to the very similar conditions and their thinking alike. What does the Pali Canon say about Mind phenomena in this sense. What are your thoughts? Am I being deluded? (laughs) (laughs) We'll start at the end. (laughs) 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 Probably, because um, we all are, to some extent, uh, which is, I think, a good humbling place to, and realistic place from which to practice the Dhamma, is that we are all being deluded by our thoughts, views, and perceptions, to some extent. (coughs) So, what is mind? Well, (coughs) in Pali, the word is, uh, the main word that we refer to is jitta. There are other uh, terms, uh, vijnana, which refers to consciousness. Um, But, uh, let's say, generally, we we, we use the term jitta. In a a more general sense, which refers to mind, heart, or that part of our being which is not physical. You could also call it nama. Another way to refer to what we are is nama rupa. Rupa meaning body or or materiality um, or form, and uh, nama referring to that which is is, uh, mental. So, what is mind? Basically, everything that's not the physical elements of your body you can consider mind. So, um, sense awareness is mind. Memory, perceptions is mind. Thought formations are mind. Uh, basically, you know what makes us what makes us uh, um, alive sense is mine. Because once you take consciousness out of a human body, then it's considerably different. <laughs> Even a freshly dead body, it just doesn't look the same. It's amazing. You know? um, it should look pretty much the same as a, as a living body or, or a sleeping body and a dead body next to each other. They don't look the same. Uh, something um, important has passed away. So, now, my general understanding of uh, how mind functions is that more or less they're individual streams of consciousness which are bound up for the time being with this or that, this part of nature, these groups of elements that we call our bodies. Uh, but mind or the mental energy, it doesn't stop at the body, it doesn't, doesn't stop at the skin, right? And, uh, you know, it can, it, it's not limited by that. So it can definitely kind of go out and around. And certainly, um, for people who have a lot of um, more well-developed minds, well-developed meditation, then the sphere of their mental energy can envelop the whole room, uh, the whole entire area, and um, ultimately can uh, be unlimited. So that's how uh, I certainly understand it, even just among normal people. Um, uh, you can vision a bit like, a, mental energy is a bit like a sphere around, a, around people. And if we're not totally preoccupied with our own thoughts and, and whatnot, if we're, if we're, if we're somewhat uh, sensitive then when we're with other people we're picking up on their minds as well so there's a certain percentage of our minds which are intersecting Right? it's like okay in a kind of a, a crude metaphor we've got, we've got mind A and we've got mind B and then there's a certain part where they overlap and then, well, whose thought is it? You know, it kind of arises in that, in that area, and then uh, it's not uncommon for two people to have the same thought at the same time, and then someone says it and says, wait a minute, that's my thought. I was just thinking that. So how does that work? So I, uh, um, although there are, uh, like, it's an individual stream we're very much interconnected, you know, and affecting each other. And uh, and that can be used to create a positive effect as well. Many of the meditation masters, you know, when they would have um, people sitting meditation in meditation hall, kind of enveloping the whole hall with their minds and helping people just to calm down, helping people... Uh, to to reduce their key laces, at least during that time, especially especially around Ajahn Chah, You would do that. People would come and wouldn't know wouldn't know why exactly, but just being around Ajahn Chah, their minds would just go much more peaceful. You know, a lot of the defilements or hindrances wouldn't arise so much, uh, and uh, you know, because he had the ability to just envelop everyone with. Of loving kindness or a sense of of samadhi, he had a very very powerful mind. So, um, one of the things I think which keeps a stream of consciousness somewhat separate or individual, like an individual stream of consciousness that goes from, from life to life, is precisely the identification uh, which gives rise to birth after birth after birth. And uh, what happens to mind or consciousness after the death of an enlightened being, after one is fully purified and, and no longer uh, is no longer has any identification you know, with body or any aspect of the mind, uh, when the stream of consciousness is totally purified from even the most subtle forms of greed, hatred, and delusion, then what happens when that person passes away? Where does their mind go? So that's, uh, that's a question which I'm not going to answer, <laughs> because even the Buddha didn't answer it. and People would ask. And at most he would give a, a simile such as, um, say, well, what happens, you know, this candle was lit a minute ago and then I, I, uh, I waved it out and the flame went out. So where did the flame go? Well, did the flame, can you say the flame went north, south, east or west? Does the flame still exist or does the flame not exist? So, well, a lot of those questions don't really, really apply to flames. Them, right. Well, the same is true of, of consciousness. Consciousness was uh, arose according to causes and conditions, like the flame arose to, according to causes and conditions. And when the flame goes out, then then you say, well, where did the flame go? Now there are different interpretations of that as well. Um, you know, there's some who say, well, uh, when the flame goes out, it just goes out. So that means, you know, once there's no more uh, Identification, or the you know the desire for existence that we call bawa tanha, that, uh, that keeps us going, that that, that desire, uh, the will to exist. Once that is completely ceased, then does consciousness or mind simply cease? Uh, does it simply go out like a flame? Uh, that's one possibility, and some people interpret it in that way. Or uh, is it the case that when uh, uh, in ancient India apparently their, their philosophy or their idea of a flame uh, was that it was like a latent state of a fire. Fire kind of existed in a latent state and then when causes and conditions arose it could come into uh, manifestation and they would see and then when it would be extinguished Would go back into its kind of general latent state, and so when the Buddha said, you know, that at the passing away of an enlightened person and the flame goes out, was he referring to that, or is it when the when when consciousness uh, no is no longer limited by uh, an individual identification, an identification with particular Mental and physical elements—is it simply released, uh, no longer bound, you know, by this limiting uh, concept, and just kind of like a drop in the ocean? Instead of just being an individual drop, it just—you know—if you take take a little drop, it's individually throw it into the lake. So then, is it still there or not? Is the drop still there? The water's still there, but you can't really call it a drop. It's kind of like mine is just gone into a vaster field of mental energy. Uh, Whatever happens to mind after the death of a fully enlightened person, it's beyond our ability to conceptualize it, which makes it easy. We just don't worry about it. But of course, people still like to try to figure it out. What the Buddha did say clearly was the five khandas cease. Five khandas being body, uh, feeling, vedana, which we were talking about before, Sannya, perceptions, um, sankhara mental formations, basically you know the more uh, involved parts of our thinking, moods, emotions, and then viññana sense consciousness, uh, which is basically seeing, hearing, smelling, etc. He says all that ceases. Uh, after the death of a fully enlightened person, so then you know you scratch your scratch your head and say, "Well, what's left?" You know that's all. You know all we have to all we have to imagine or work with are the tools within the five khandas. How can you imagine something that's outside the five khandas? So, just by definition, you know, we can't uh, figure it out. And in any time that someone came to the Buddha and asked a question such as this what happens after the death of an Arhan do they continue to exist do they do they not exist do they both exist and not exist do they neither not exist or not not anyways um, <coughs> the Buddha would say no 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 and um, and would just take the emphasis off of trying to figure out the end of the path onto, this is what you need to do here and now to practice. Once you're there, you'll find out for yourself. And that's often the same answer we get from the four astajans. So when you're there, then roll for yourself. That's the first question. This is from Fred. Dear Ajahn, I saw a picture of you on your website where you appeared to be meditating with a tiger. Can you please talk about this? <laughs> it's true, it was not photoshopped. <laughs> it was the tiger stuffed. There was, there was a live tiger. Um however, to be honest, I can't really say I was I was meditating with that. I like to. It. it would be a great story if I could say yes. A ferocious wild tiger came out of the jungle and I spread metta and it laid its great head in my lap. <laughs> 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 Which is what the picture is, the tiger's great big tiger and it's got its head in my lap. And um, but that photo I think is from the Tiger Monastery, probably in Thailand, which is a a monastery which began with a a few tigers that they had saved from the wild, or tigers that were going to be destroyed uh, by the Forest Service, and they volunteered to take them in and raise them, and the tigers became very tame, especially the ones that were raised from cubs, so they became like big, docile uh, cats. And then... um, We visited them, a group group from Wapanacha visited that monastery a long time ago when they were still very small and they just had a few tigers. And uh, the abbot, you know, still had a lot of time and and, uh, took us around. We were able to take the tiger for a walk and uh, it was really impressive. I was very, very impressed with tigers. Some of those, I think it was the most beautiful animal I've ever seen and to be able to be right next to the tiger and uh you know it's just it's very powerful it's got a lot of power to it and then the abbot put some milk tablets in my hand and said here hold it out to the tiger so i did that and the tiger went (laughs) and its tongue was bigger than my hand (laughs) and it just kind of rough like like a wet sandpaper or something. I was like, oh. uh, But then, uh, about 10 years after that, I I went again with uh, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Sudanto We were kind of going through that area. I think we were on the way back from our branch monastery in on the Burmese border. <clears throat> and uh, we stopped in. By that time, it had turned into a huge operation more like a zoo, and they had lots of different tigers and a huge amount of tourists and they were, I mean it turned into, I don't know, uh, not a monastery anymore, it was just like a, a huge zoo, and uh, you, could, you could go in, and there was a huge line of people, and you go in, and they sit you down, and then they take the tiger, who's lying there, kind of very placid, sleepy, because they're basically nocturnal, so during the day they're pretty... Docile, and they, and they take the tiger and put the tiger's head in your lap, and then they take a photo, you know, and then you take the tiger's head off your lap. And the next person comes in,
1: <laughs> put <the> tiger's head <laughs> onto their lap,
0: take a photo, and you know, and it's kind of a turned into a real cheesy operation. <laughs> so that's what the photo is from. <laughs> But it uh, makes a good photo. <laughs> what is the percentage, if possible, the mix of present moment reactions and perceptions due to karma, sankaras, and anything additional? I'm not quite I'm not fully clear on what's being asked. Did you write this? Yes. Um so in the moment karma is coming in and then our mental conditionings from this life and then interacting with someone else what is the mix of that present moment interaction? Oh, okay. Got it. <clears throat> so when when karma is coming in, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, let's let's take one present moment. The the entire history of, of the universe, all the causes and conditions, um, many of them from our own personal comment intentions and but also other other causes and conditions in addition to that all come together in this present moment then what we bring to that um, it creates the next moment it is is then the is both the reaction but then the cause and condition <laughs> for the next moment and etc Mm. our conditioning so you you can't you can't put a per, uh, a percentage on the amount of conditioning that's going to be present or the amount of freedom that's going to be present, because it really depends on the person, it depends on the moment, depends on how aware we are, how much you know, real mindfulness and wisdom we bring to that moment. Now, let's say, okay, all of this, this happens, and then uh, if we have very little awareness of that, then pretty much we react simply by habits. Not that different than being a robot. Uh, A certain constant condition comes into play. We have learned habits from from childhood, from society, from um, everything that has created this particular personality and learned habitual responses to that. Some of which might be appropriate for situations. Some of which might not be appropriate. Some of which might be socially acceptable, but still not be leading to happiness. So, um, or if we've been practicing Dhamma for a while, some of our habits might be quite good. So even if we don't have mindfulness, then we might respond in a wholesome way, just due to our our positive conditioning, wholesome conditioning. So. Uh, But even if that's the case, with very little mindfulness, then there's very little freedom. Freedom to go beyond our conditioning. Now, it um, doesn't mean we don't have any mindfulness there, um, because just to survive, almost all beings will have some basic mindfulness. But to have enough uh, clarity of the situation to be, to, to really be aware of it, and then enough wisdom, bring enough wisdom to it to respond in a wholesome way, and then the right effort to make that that uh, response a wise one. That's where, that's, that's really how we can find an escape from our conditioned reactions. That's really how we can get out of the prison. And so it's not just being aware, right? But it's also being aware with wisdom, bringing whatever amount of of wisdom we've developed to bear on that moment as well. Um, Just being aware. Animals have to be aware when they're killing, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be transcending their Habitual patterns. It doesn't necessarily mean they'll be making wholesome decisions. Uh, Thieves have to be very aware when they're going to crack a safe or break into a house. They have to have clear awareness if they're going to be good at what they're doing. Uh, But that doesn't mean they're going to be free from their um, habitual thieving. So bringing wisdom to bear on it with awareness and then and then also making that the, the shift again to right effort. So at every moment, if we're practicing, it's not just mindfulness, but also right effort. You know, at every stage of the noble Eightfold Path, mindfulness, right mindfulness and right effort have to go together at, uh, with each factor. So right effort then means making, making sure or making the attempt, Uh, that our reaction will be a wise one, will give rise to wholesome states of mind, or at least allow the unwholesome states of mind to cease. So it is uh, more than awareness. It is all these other factors of the path coming together in harmony. Well, this next question says, When the Buddha was asked about the existence of a god, capital G, he remained silent. How about you? Do you have any thoughts about a god or presence within? Um, I don't recall any time when the Buddha was asked about the existence of uh, god, per se, uh, in that sense, where he remained silent. Uh, if he uh, there were times when he would um, remain silent for example if he was asked about um, one of the imponderable questions such as what happens after the death of a fully enlightened Um but in terms of existence of uh, gods and uh, uh, beliefs at that time, whether they were uh, monotheistic beliefs or um, believes in a, a whole pantheon of deities. Uh, he he spoke uh, out. You know, he 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 was fairly clear on his um, on his understanding of what of what the, the cosmology was. Uh, he uh, uh, in terms of gods or heavenly beings uh, that there were. There are actually many different levels uh, which correspond correspond to um, how refined our states of mind become you know, as we practice. However, even the most uh, refined uh, heavenly realms where, where gods are extremely long-lived, maybe like just radiant, bright energy beings, um, very... Let's see. Uh, powerful in the sense that they would have the ability to create things and, and know, they envelop the, envelop the human realm with their, with their mental energy. Uh, even those gods would still be within the realm of samsara, still subject to birth and death. And um, the uh, the uh, in the suttas probably the the God, which is most similar to what we, what the monotheistic uh, religious traditions would think of as God, is um, a one called the Mahabrahma. It's like the Great Brahma, uh, which is um, yeah. So the uh, the Buddha did um, uh, speak about that and um, basically said. Uh, didn't deny the existence of such beings but uh, said that they were still uh, first of all within the realm of of birth and death, not liberated and still deluded Uh, even though they would have uh, be up at that level they would have a tremendous amount of purity Um, but underlying that there was still a delusion um, especially um, with the Mahabrahma, a lot of delusion about um, uh, that had to do with sense of self. I am the great Brahma. And uh, so that's, uh, the, the Buddha did speak about uh, a lot of the different um, religious uh, and philosophical beliefs of his day. There was one sutta in the Dighinikaya <coughs> where uh, He systematically goes through uh, the 62 main uh, uh, religious and philosophical views of that time and uh, and talks about it. And so uh, one of them was the monotheistic uh, religious tradition. Uh, How about me? Well, I try to keep an open mind, uh, but uh, generally no one, if it comes down to um, uh, belief systems. I mean, belief really is not—it's not a such a, a key factor uh, as as much as personal experience is in, in Buddhism. Um, but um, I'm definitely inclined towards um, Buddhist view, you know, on, on such things. It's clear that those we live with may benefit from our practice. How do those not in our lives directly benefit from our practice? Well, who do you think is not in your life? Do you mean the people who aren't our immediate family members, or the people who we don't work with, but um, if one person starts to reduce uh, the unwholesome states in their own mind, starts to uh, become more balanced, happy, patient forgiving kind you know just gradually turning into quite a wonderful person that will that uh, can affect the people around us as was mentioned in the question but then those people you know they might be uplifted a bit yeah you know? just being around someone who's you know bright and joyous can can put us into a good mood and then but then that that let's say that family member, but then they go to work in a better mood, and then they may affect the people uh, in their immediate sphere, and then uh, and then those people, you know, in, in uh, you know in another way may you know, uh, affect in a positive way th- those uh, other people that they know. So gradually the ripple effect can continue out. So in that way, I think kind of directly, we, uh, we do have an effect on the world. It's not, um, it's not just the people that we see around us, but then the people who those people affect, and then the people who those people affect. And um, you know, I think the ripple analogy is, is quite accurate. And, and the farther it goes, maybe the intensity might drop off a bit, but the, the sphere gets wider and wider. <clears throat> so, you know, this—sometimes this, uh, people get into this uh, almost guilt-ridden position of thinking, "Oh, you know, uh, is meditating selfish?" <laughs> is med- because it's a funny question to me, because the whole idea of Buddhist practice is to see through and dissolve this delusion itself. So, you know, a meditation could never be selfish. But particularly, um, it's not selfish in the sense that even if we can just reduce our anger (coughs) uh, from what it used to be, then that's a great gift to other people. And... and, uh, I mean, I don't know in your family situations, but, you know, you know it's like sometimes all it takes is, uh, you know, if one person in a family who can't control their anger, and then it has a, a big effect on everybody else, uh, and not just for that day, you know, it can be a memories that can last for years and years. So being able to... Um, reduce our anger enough or raise our, our, um, our wise responses to the level where we don't explode uh, even just that much uh, is a huge gift you know, not at all selfish and uh, and you can just directly see how that would benefit everyone around us. So this, the, the dichotomy breaks down between you know am, am I meditating? For my own benefit, or for the benefit of other people, right? Should I? Should I? It's almost like, well, if I'm just sitting in benefit, going on retreat, um, isn't that selfish? Uh, shouldn't I be out there um, you know, feeding the poor, or working in a hospice, or um, looking after my children, or whatever? Uh, but coming on retreat or having a regular practice, if it makes you more patient, kind, loving, forgiving, then you are serving your family directly. You are doing the best thing you can for all the people you work with and for society in general. Um, and correspondingly, if you want to go out and, and uh, be of service, you know, physical service in the world, help people, donate your time, then that's not just service for other people, but it helps us. Right? the uh, The intention to want to help someone else, to sacrifice our time in order to help someone else ha- is Dhamma practice. It has a purifying effect. It's wholesome kama. You know, it comes back to that that um, positive, uh, selfless intention. So whether we're working sitting quietly or whether we're out uh, physically uh, being of service in some way, I think both are, are equally uh, yeah, both are equally important and beneficial. Ooh. It's a tough one. Is using hand sanitizer a violation of the first precept? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Only when you take it and hit someone over the head. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or or if you you force someone to drink it (laughs) (laughs) and they keel over, that would be a violation of the first precept. Um, if you are squirting hand sanitizers on innocent mosquitoes that would be a violation of the first precept if you've got a mosquito on your you think it's gonna I'm just cleaning my hand <laughs> and they get covered and they die uh, you can't fool karma <laughs> so that, in that way so I would say sometimes this is the answer to this question is sometimes. Microbes.
1: <coughs> now, Uh
0: obviously the question is referring to microbiotic life. And um, the uh uh there's no clear um, let's say in terms of Dhamma, there's no clear guideline where life stops stops and starts. There is a grey area uh on uh what is a living being? However, in terms of uh, the vinya, like the monastic discipline, um, it's considered, if you can't, if something's not visible, then, uh, you, then you're then you not responsible uh, for, for killing it. In the sense that if something's so small that you can't see it, um, then um, you wouldn't, uh, it's not breaking the precept. Of course, in, in the ancient days, you know, they didn't have electro, electromagnetic microscopes. Um, you know, microscopes that can detect these little um, the minute dinosaur-like creatures who are existing on our skin. And, uh, so yeah, what happens to them? But it's an interesting question in the sense that um, if we take the precept and we try to try to refrain from all killing, and we start to reflect, well, uh, even if I am very, very careful, is it possible to refrain from all killing? Partly, um, some of it is unintentional. For example, if we're walking through the forest, uh, we may accidentally step on ants uh, it's very difficult uh, not to unintentionally unknowingly uh, harm beings just through our presence in the world um, but that's that's unintentional now if we actually know um, through science that there are living beings on our skin if we if we just wipe our Oh, careful. We just wipe our hand, you know, on our arm, does that crush them? I don't actually know. But um, the Buddhist teachings are, um, first and foremost, very practical and down-to-earth. Um, if uh, you get into kind of a, a theoretical position, which leads to uh, you don't even want to uh, use soap because that might harm some minute being on your skin. It's a personal decision, but you know, that, that might be going too far. <laughs> you also have to consider the welfare of the people meditating next to you. you know, um, not to use soap might have a direct effect on them too. Might not actually kill them. Okay. Another question regarding karma: How does one recognize and/or work with past karma? Sure. Uh, spoke a, a bit about that already and uh, you can't work with past comma by going into the past right? uh, even if it's if our memory it's still happening in the present a uh, memory is, is taking place in the present so the only way that um, we can interact with the law of comma is in the present moment in fact, by the time we're aware of something, it's already maybe just a slightly, a slight fraction of a moment passed. But in our reaction, our reaction to what is occurring now, that's how we can uh, interact with karma. And karma in that way is absolutely not a fixed, fatalistic type of a teaching. Uh, Although... um, Kind of popular understanding uh, of karma is, is often portrayed like that, in the sense that oh, well, it's just my karma or uh, with the idea, well, it, it's always been that way, it's always going to be that way, you know, I can't do anything to change it. This is definitely not how the Buddha ex- explained karma. He said, well, there is nothing's fixed in that sense. Uh, there may be very strong tendencies, M- maybe uh, uh, um, uh, we may have done things in the past which are likely to have very strong effects, but there's only a, there's only a few acts which are uh, really unchangeable uh, temporarily. You know, the effects are quite certain, um, at, least, at least temporarily. But then those effects will wear off as well. For example, if you, if you intentionally injure a Buddha, or if you kill an arhat, or if you kill your mother, or if you kill your father, or if you create uh, a schism in the monastic sangha, then that uh, that is very heavy effects. But uh, those effects aren't uh, permanent. They will wear off. Now, the way the Buddha talked about the law of karma is that it's a very dynamic process. In the present moment, What whatever is happening, whether this present moment... For you is wonderful, peaceful, blissful, or if it's um, painful in the extreme, then we have a choice in how we respond to that. And it's it's if we respond with defilement or kilesa, then we're going to keep perpetuating it into the future. Uh, creating causes which will bring further unhappiness into the future, and the, the causes tend to be similar to the intention that we put in. Uh, B- the Buddha said the workings of karma are uh, very, very complex, so mm, it's difficult to figure out these one-to-one correspondences about, you know, if I have this intention, does that mean in the future I get this? <coughs> uh, it's not so simplistic. However, um, as, a general, as general tendencies, you know, for example, the, if we have uh, generous intentions, wanting to, wanting to help and give, uh, uh, be of service, then we tend to get that back. You know? If we have intentions of, of metta, loving kindness, then we tend to get that back, um, both uh, um, in the immediate scenario, but also uh, in the more distant future. But it's really how we respond to each moment. Uh, and that's why every moment is an opportunity to create our future. Uh, so if we're really paying attention, if we're really vigilant, we say, wow, what a fantastic opportunity. Uh, every moment I have the, the ability to create whatever future I want. <laughs> In a sense, of still... You know, within, the, the, within the realm of, of samsara and having a sense of self. You, know, you say, well, you want a, a future that's filled with love. Okay, great. In this present moment, no matter what comes up in meditation, respond with, uh, may you be well, may you be free from suffering, kind of a, a genuine uh, sense of, of love, generating you know, love over and over again and then you're literally creating a world in the present and in the future uh, which is going to be filled with that. Um, if you, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you would aspire towards in the future, uh, you know, if it's uh, just being free, just totally free from samsara, if that's, the, if that's your aspiration then just keep hammering away, at um, you know, three characteristics, uh, looking at them you know, more and more deeply, each moment, moment after moment, and so every moment then becomes this precious little opportunity. You say, wow! This is this is it's amazing. You know, it's I'm not I'm not a victim. Uh, I'm not a slave to my past conditioning. Sometimes. It's so strong that we feel like, well, our, our reactivity is, is almost out of our control uh, because the habits are so strong, but no habit is permanent. We have the ability to, to, to lessen the habits. Sometimes you know, we really have to, um, like if we know that we have a, ha- a habit to respond in an unwholesome way, sometimes we just have to force ourselves not to do that. but that will weaken the unwholesome response. It will weaken it, and uh, then it becomes easier and easier in the future not to react in foolish or harmful ways. And it becomes easier and easier to to respond um, with a lot of these wholesome qualities that we really would like to have in our life. <laughs> what inspires your Dhamma talk topics? That's a secret. <laughs> That's a secret. Maybe after the retreat, I'll tell you. <laughs> so you listen closely. Listen closely to see if you can figure it out. Mm-hmm. would you say the goal in life is happiness or love and to what degree is suffering necessary in love not romantic love but the highest form of the word highest form of the word well um, the word... Let's see. Okay, well, let's start in the beginning. Would you say the goal of life is happiness? Yes. Goal of Buddhist practice, for example, or the highest human potential, uh, is happiness. But then how do you define happiness? What type of happiness? And what is the happiness based on? Uh, generally... How uh, Buddhist practice works is that we replace a more gross happiness with a more refined happiness. And then uh, the mind naturally inclines towards happiness or uh, mental pleasure. And so it's impossible to, to really force ourselves to really let go of something until we find a more refined happiness. And then we don't have to force ourselves at all. It's like, boom, your know, mind, even without conscious intention, mind's going to incline towards that more refined happiness. Uh, so that uh, that's how we can um, use happiness as a way to lead us along the path from um, the more worldly levels to more and more refined levels. <clears throat> Now, the Buddha did refer to Nibbana as the highest happiness. If he was going to describe it as anything, he said, well, it's the highest happiness. So, in that sense, you could say yes. Now, if you want to look at the word love, uh, love in English, of course, can mean almost anything. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I, love, I love toast and peanut butter but that's not my ultimate aspiration. (laughs) Well, well, although it used to be. (laughs) When I was younger, maybe it used to be, but I guess that's a sign of progress. It's no longer uh, so now there's, uh, we're not referring to a romantic love, but let's use the, the Pali term metta. So metta refers to a kind of uh, caring for uh, other people, a, gener- uh, a wholesome state of mind that's generated to, to uh, uh, want to, uh, sincerely cares about the well-being of the people around us, animals, and ourselves. Let's not forget ourselves, we are one of all the beings in existence. Now, metta can be developed to greater and greater uh, levels of purity. Uh, uh, Ultimately, if metta is unconditional, then that's real meta, right? Um, as long as it's conditional, it's it's part meta and part worldly love, right? Now, I I love my parents, um, but there's probably uh, some some of that is because they're my parents, right? Uh, a special relationship because um, of a long history together, uh, gratitude for all the things they've done for me, etc. Or with children, like I, um, some of you probably love your children, and uh, but and there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice, almost like a un- almost unconditional love for children, and yet it's not quite unconditional because might care about your children a little bit more than some other kids on, on the street, you know, strangers' kids on the street. It's like, well, I care about them too, but, you know, my children, I'll do anything for my children. So it's not quite unconditional love uh, because there's still that sense of possessiveness of mine, you know, my relationship. So real metta is, is a very high standard, you know, uh, Where it's not based on on conditions such as am I getting anything back? I mean, it's a lot of a lot of love is based on getting something in return, and it may not be. It may be something subtle, or it just may be like I'll I'll love you if if you love me back, right? But if you don't love me back, I'm not going to love you, (laughs) right? Or or. Uh, I'll love you if, um, if you give me some for, s- sort of security in some way, make me feel secure or make me feel whole. Uh, you know, it's like getting something back. Or um, I'll love you if you if you tell me I'm wonderful. Right? We, we may not be explicitly uh, egotistical, but there may be some subtle forms where you know if someone's. Telling us, "Oh, you're so, you're so wonderful. I couldn't live without you. I want to be with you my whole life. Oh, you're you're the best person. you best thing that's ever happened to me. Oh, you're so fantastic." Then um, it's easy to love people <laughs> when they when they're like that, or when they when they give us. Mental and physical pleasure in some way, and they're not giving us suffering, then it becomes easier to love people. Uh, but even in subtle forms, you know, not the gross forms, but it's more subtle forms, you know, we're kind of getting, still getting something back, and then uh, it's not completely unconditional. But then uh, real unconditional love is, is a pretty high bar, you know, pretty a very high standard, where uh, even if people are um, not kind to us, and we still have the same amount of metta for them. Right? Even if people aren't giving us any kind of ego gratification at all, <laughs> or, or any mental or physical pleasure, we still have uh, metta for them, in the same way that we would for people that are easy to love. Now, that's that's a high standard. Um, but then, when metta reaches its point of... Um, uh, uh, not being restricted at all you know, not, not being restricted by um, these concepts of I like and I don't like uh, then, then the mind really uh, can experience a lot of freedom like just uh, it's like it's released and so there are uh, states of absorption or jhana you know, based on metta, uh, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, uh, sympathetic joy and equanimity, which are very, very powerful states of mind, very, very pure, pure-hearted uh, states of mind, extremely pure-hearted, uh, and yet still they're not free from samsara, they're not free from rebirth. So this is... I think that type of love might be the goal of of certain types of spirituality. I mean, and it and it's and it's a beautiful. I mean, it's so far beyond where most of us are that uh, it's really a beautiful thing. But the Buddha says, still, even that exalted level of purity of of love is Still within the realm of birth and death, um, because it's only uh, it's really only insight which can uproot completely the uh, the seeds, you know, the 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 deep roots of raga dosa and moha, or greed, hatred, and delusion. And powerful states of mind like that can will suppress it. for potentially a long time, so that on the surface you don't see any obvious forms, very, very pure. But, like any state of samadhi, it can wear off, and gradually wear off, and then, after a while, a little bit of selfishness comes up, or a little bit of irritation, or a little bit of of greed can, can come up. So those are my thoughts on uh, happiness and love. (laughs) Can you please talk about no self? I don't get it. (laughs) <laughs> I like I like that. <laughs> I don't get it. Honest. <clears throat> oh, when we um, when we look at ourselves here. Yeah. Uh, it's generally a, a strong feeling of sense of me, right? You know, a, a identification with with what we have here. Uh, if I look down at at these elements, uh, you know, I say that what immediately comes to mind is my arm, my legs, my fingers, my rope. And uh, when memories arise, you know, I think, well, it's my memory, it's my thought, etc. So there's, there's a constant um, kind of identification with what is manifesting in the present moment. And where does that come from? Uh, now, the, uh, the Buddha would say that the, the root cause of all suffering is this identification? It's like appropriating bits of nature that are just happening by themselves, but then calling it mine. All these elements in my body, for example, I mean, they come and they go, they're changing all the time, and yet I still call it mine. I mean, who's to say these elements are really mine? But I appropriate them and call them mine. Even though they're changing every day, and after a certain number of years, the molecules have totally changed. After after years, like ninety-eight percent of the molecules on the body are different. So it's the same mine or different mine, anyways. The uh, the uh, identification uh, where wherever it comes from is a thing which keeps us going throughout life and from life to life, but it's also the thing which then needs to be protected and then gives rise to wanting, gives rise to aversion. And so this delusion of self is the you kind know, of the really the the illusionary kingpin of defilements, which then creates all the other defilements to try to protect or embellish that illusion of self. Now the Buddha would say when one is able to investigate with a calm, uh, trained, uh, focused mind, a mind that's been uh, owned and, and trained in meditation and and his um, kind of living a whole lifestyle which is conducive to developing wisdom and then one clearly investigates one will see that actually everything is just working on a cause and effect principle there's no me or person behind it all even with something like seeing right like I say, it's just if you have a functioning eye and then something outside and then consciousness comes in and seeing happens. Um, even decisions that we make. Very, uh, it's very instructive uh, to look at the decisions that we make. How much freedom do we have in making decisions? Um, so many of the decisions... That potentially we can make are simply based on, on what, following our conditioned habits. And say, well, where does, where does this decision come from? And then, again, it's based on because of this, because of that. Uh, where does this thought come from? Do we have any really original thoughts? Uh, most of the thoughts, you know, can or maybe all of the thoughts can be traced back to other uh, conditions, other um, something that we've read, something that we've. We've seen something that someone else has said, um, which has kind of cre- been causes or conditions, and then a thought arises as a result. And the more one's able to see this on a momentary basis, so well, wait a minute, everything's just kind of happening on a cause and effect principle here. Where is me and all of that? And um, and, and uh, we gradually, you know, that's we see through that illusion. And one of the things that really helps is, is seeing how that sense of self creates suffering for us. And this is where the basic um, strangeness about human behavior comes in, is that we're all seeking happiness, and yet we tend to do things um, either in small ways or sometimes big ways, which create our own suffering. Uh, why is that? Because of this basic delusion of self. Uh, as long as it's there, it tries to do things to perpetuate itself. And in the process, the only way it can do that is, is really through, mainly through defilements, um, but even through identifying with good things. You know, it's the basic identification, even if it's identifying with being a good person, a moral person, a kind person. You know, it still comes back to this, this identification there, and that's going to create some, some dukkha, some suffering in the future. <clears throat> About. Okay, that uh, is the end of the questions. Thank you very much, and we'll continue on meditating for another Thank you for listening.